Season one of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler was made possible by a generous grant from the Kaplan Foundation. You can find a complete list of pieces and performers featured in this episode on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. Please follow us on X at World of Mahler and on Facebook and Instagram at The World of Gustav Mahler. Mahler once told his fellow composer Sibelius that a symphony must be like the world. It must embrace everything. And that's where we get the title of our program. We're going to explore Mahler's musical embrace. I'm Aaron Cohen, and in season one, our focus is going to be Mahler's first symphony. There are four episodes this season, one for each movement of the symphony. I'd recommend you listen to the episodes in order if you can. In this episode, we'll kick things off by looking at the opening movement. To understand the inspirations of this movement, we'll begin, not where you might expect, but with this piece. This is from The Four Seasons, Vivaldi's famed violin concertos from the early 1720s. The accompanying poem begins, Spring has arrived with joy, welcomed by the birds with happy songs. In the early 1800s, Beethoven wrote his pastoral symphony. Beethoven also gives us birdsong. Another famous example of nature portrayed in music is from the opera Siegfried, the third part of Wagner's Ring Cycle, written in the late 1850s. This segment is called Forest Murmurs. The hero of the story hears birdsong. Which brings us to Mahler, because he too looked to nature for inspiration. His first symphony reflects that right from the opening. Natalie Bauer-Lechner, Mahler's great friend and confidant, described it this way. With the first note, the long-sustained harmonic A in all registers and instruments, we are in the midst of nature, in the forest where the summer midday sunshine shivers and glitters between all the branches. When Mahler was a young boy, his father took him to the woods on the outskirts of town one day and left him there to run an errand. I always imagine this is the sound of the mystery and wonder of nature as seen through young and innocent eyes.
When Mahler's father returned several hours later, having forgotten all about his son, he found Mahler sitting in exactly the same spot, the young boy fascinated by the sights and sounds of nature surrounding him. The forest was on the outskirts of a town called Iglau, in what is now the Czech Republic. Sitting there in the forest, Mahler would have heard sounds of nature, but also sounds from the town, military bands. There's a beautiful stillness in this portrayal of the forest, the glimmering of the air, the mystery of nature, and birdsong. Conductor Michael Tilson Thomas. So much of what's there has to do with those early years in Iglau and the experiences that were just part of his daily life there. Iglau was a military outpost in Moravia, and the young Mahler would have heard marching bands frequently, which is where he gets these fanfares. He would have heard many other kinds of music, at festivals in the central square, in his father's tavern. There would have been a kind of soundscape which he was hearing, and it was the setting down, the kind of recording of that soundscape, and more importantly, his emotional reactions to the soundscape that really became the purpose of what he was writing. Mahler would make himself the central figure in his symphony. Natalie Bauer-Lechner met Mahler at the Vienna Conservatory in the mid-1870s, where they both studied. Mahler was establishing himself as a conductor when he quickly wrote his first symphony in 1888. Natalie remembered it vividly. Mahler composed the whole symphony in Leipzig, within six weeks, while constantly conducting and rehearsing. He worked from the time he got up until 10 o'clock in the morning and in the evenings when he was free. Mahler had little time to himself that year, but then the German emperor died. All normal activity temporarily came to a halt for a period of mourning. 10 days of which he took the fullest advantage. 10 days of intensive composition. Later that month, Mahler wrote to his childhood friend, Fritz Lohr, My dear Fritz, well, my work is finished. Now I should like to have you by my piano and play it to you. Probably you are the only person who will find me unchanged in it. The others will doubtless wonder at a number of things. Fritz would have recognized passages Mahler had borrowed from earlier compositions, blended into this new, extended work. It's turned out so overwhelming. It came gushing out of me like a mountain torrent. This summer you shall hear it. All of a sudden, all the sluice gates in me opened. Perhaps one of these days I shall tell you how it all happened. Spring is driving me out of the house. I must get out and once again take deep breaths of fresh air. For the last six weeks I have seen nothing but my desk. One of the melodies Fritz would have recognized in the first movement comes from a song Mahler had written three years earlier. Geld, du wirst mich deine schöne Welt, schöne Welt. 
This was one of several songs inspired by Johanna Richter, a soprano at the Castle Theater in central Germany, where Mahler was working as a conductor. They had a tempestuous romance, but it didn't last. Mahler wrote about it to Fritz. I have written a cycle of songs, six of them so far, all dedicated to her. The idea of the songs as a whole is that a wayfaring man who's been stricken by fate now sets forth into the world traveling wherever his road may lead him. In this song, we find the wayfarer looking at nature with wide-eyed wonder. And it was this melody that Mahler borrowed for the first movement. The lyrics of Mahler's original song were almost childlike, and he worried that critics wouldn't appreciate them. The words of the songs are my own. I did not give my name to the program to avoid providing ammunition for adversaries who would be quite capable of parodying the naive and simple style. Here are Mahler's naive and simple lyrics, in translation. As I walked this morning through the field, the dew still hung upon the grass. The Mary Finch called out to me, Hey, you there! Good day to you. Isn't this a splendid world? Tweet, tweet, fine and bright. Oh, how I love the world. Here's Marilyn McCoy, a music professor at Columbia University in New York City. He wants to bring the forest into our minds. And, you know, you can have the rustling of the trees. That's kind of hard to do. But if you bring in birds, then you bring in trees. Throughout this first movement, audiences need to become musical bird watchers. Keep your ears open, and the birds will peek out from unexpected places. Mahler's friend Natalie Bauer-Lechner put it this way. Mahler has a very sensitive ear for all the sounds of nature. The cuckoo's call, for instance, which plays such an exuberantly cheerful role in his first symphony. Bill Hudgens of the Boston Symphony Orchestra says it's not easy for a clarinet player to imitate. For my part, the principal clarinet part, one of the trickier things for me is all the cuckoos. Mahler spreads it out. I mean, you hear it in the flute, you hear it in the piccolo quite a bit, but he uses the first clarinet to do it a lot. Mahler called birds the first composers. Even as a child, I was struck by birdsong. I noted how it would begin with conscious singing and a definite rhythm and melody, but then would turn into inarticulate twittering, like a four-footed animal standing on two legs for a moment, but immediately falling back on all fours again. I mean, it's kind of funny. If you've ever heard a European cuckoo bird live, I've heard them out in the woods there. It never hardly varies. And here's what a cuckoo out in the woods really sounds like. Mahler was far from unsophisticated in his writing, says Kent Nagano, conductor of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. 
this first symphony reflects a very mature composer, a composer who is really, um, you could say, fully developed from a purely technical point of view. Mahler was 27 years old when he put together his first symphony. On the other hand, I think we all, as public members, we rejoice and we take a lot of pleasure in hearing the youthfulness in these young um, early symphonies. And you could call it, in the, in the positive sense, a kind of naive uh, sort of relationship with the world. Uh, quoting bird songs, for example, uh, quoting um, the sounds around you, uh, marches, uh, all of this could be seen as, as very youthful, as kind of a naive relationship with the world around and a naive portrayal. Mahler originally called the opening movements from the days of youth. But it's more, I think I'm referring to these inner feelings of naivete that we all have as human beings, a very positive um, outlook to the world of, around us with a, an awareness that there's danger, but at the same time, a kind of um, reveling or celebrating that world around us. Mahler's music has a very special autobiographical element about it. Caroline Kita, a professor specializing in German and Austrian culture at Washington University in St. Louis, says Mahler's symphonies can be thought of as musical novels. They're epic in length. They develop musical voices, um, which you might think of as kind of characters, that grow and change over the course of, of the several movements. So you have a sense there's a kind of uh, narrative arc happening in his music. A narrative arc? that belongs to Mahler's own life. People have for a long time been interested in what Mahler was trying to say, the ideas behind his music. Mahler often thought of his music as a kind of text. I mean, there are many texts to analyze when one looks at his music. As we journey through Mahler's music, we'll come across many songs and lyrics embedded in his symphonies. And sometimes Mahler gave titles to individual movements. He was very much resistant to the idea that there was one specific narrative that he was trying to convey. And for that reason, many of his original titles were removed in the final drafts. Mahler believed his music alone should convey the meaning. Bill Hudgens of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. That whole first movement of the Mahler one, I think is, is really kind of like a quite beautiful development of spring. I mean, it feels very much like the awakening of spring. Mahler called this movement spring without end. Mahler's friend Natalie elaborated. In the first movement, we are swept along by his mood of Dionysian affirmation, which so far nothing has broken or troubled. It's in nature that we find our initial themes and rhythms. She offers them to us very succinctly in the sounds made by each different animal. Man, the artist, derives his forms and subject matter from the world around him, to which he naturally lends a totally different and much wider meaning, either because he's in a state of blissful harmony with nature, or because he's in painful or negative and hostile conflict with her, or, again, because he's trying to rid himself of her by laughing at her from the top of his ivory tower. 
Such are the sources, in the most restrictive sense of the word, of an artist's style, which is sometimes noble and sublime, sometimes sentimental and tragic, and sometimes satirical and humorous. Mahler expresses all of these qualities and moods in the first symphony. The opening movement is noble and sublime. The third movement is satirical and humorous. We'll get to sentimental and tragic in the finale. Composing is like playing with building blocks, where new buildings are created again and again using the same blocks. Indeed, these blocks have been there, ready to be used since childhood, the only time that is designed for gathering. If we look at the building blocks Mahler used for this symphony, there's a musical interval that stands out. A musical interval is the distance between two notes. Marilyn McCoy. One of the most notable things about the first symphony is the prevalence of the perfect fourth. A perfect fourth sounds like this, the interval that Mahler used to open the movement. In real life, cuckoos do not sing a perfect fourth, but Mahler makes his symphonic cuckoos sing a perfect fourth. And the opening of the main melody is also a perfect fourth. Perfect fourths are part of the musical fabric in all the movements of the first symphony. This helps unify the entire composition. Another technique Mahler uses is musical foreshadowing, where he gives a preview of what's to come later. Often when you hear it, you don't know it's foreshadowing because it's woven into the piece so seamlessly. For instance, this part of the first movement doesn't sound like anything we've heard so far. But this passage is going to reappear in the final movement. And remember those fanfares at the beginning? He planted those musical seeds so they could blossom later on. Music is governed by the law of eternal evolution, eternal development, just as the world, even in one and the same spot, is always changing, eternally fresh and new. Marilyn McCoy explains one way Mahler grows his musical ideas across a long-form composition. A fanfare or something will form out of nothing, you'll hear it, and then it'll be presented really softly, you know, who cares, and then it'll be presented again, and it'll be bigger, and then it'll, like, explode at the end of the movement into something else. Paul Becker, an early commentator on Mahler in the 1920s, came up with the term breakthroughs to describe these kinds of passages in Mahler's symphonies. Huge climaxes that surprise us with their intensity and lift us up to a higher place. We'll see more breakthroughs in the fourth movement. In the meantime, Mahler wraps up the first movement with giddy delight. Bill Hudgens of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. In a certain way, you can view the whole movement as almost one long opening of a flower. It sounds like that, but it just keeps slightly opening more and more until at the end, it's almost like there's a whole field of flowers that have opened. And it's quite glorious. ¶¶ 
At the end of the movement, my hero bursts into a roar of laughter and runs away. <laughs> <laughs>